and the things that I like about working with founders are I love the vision and I love the fact that they have really thought about the problem that they're trying to solve and how we're going to get there. I'm the person really deep down inside who can help someone scale to that vision, but I am not going to be the founder of a company, obviously, at this point. And so I think for me, I migrated back to that role where I am helping someone with a very strong vision scale from a small company to a big company based on what I know. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. Have you been here before? I was here years ago. I think I visited John when he was still active. Okay. I think probably when I was at Google. So it was probably a very long time ago. Did you know John when you were- He was on the board. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, is he still on the board? He's still on the board. That's how I knew him. I think he's still on the yeah. board. Yeah. What was your interaction with the board? It was rare, but when I was running Motorola, they were keenly interested because it was such it was the biggest acquisition that Google had ever done. Like thirteen billion or something? It was twelve, twelve and a 12. half. And then it was twenty thousand employees. So it was a big deal. And so I would brief the board on what our plans were and how we were progressing and so forth. Got it. I think I knew John before that. You knew But that's John. how I started. Actually, no, I think I actually met him a couple times yeah. because he would hang around Google too. Yeah, well, he's smart. Yeah. He knows that there was going to be some good, good <laughs> Maybe people. Maybe that was it. He knows there's going to be some it. good people coming out of yeah. Google. Yeah. 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 So All that's right. how that was the first kind of couple meetings, I would say. I'm curious when you were going into those board meetings at Motorola, was that your first time being the person running the show oh, yeah. Definitely. as the CEO, not the right hand man? Totally. You are the person. Yes. And was that a different feeling? Yeah. Did was, the accountability was, feel different? From day one, it was a huge shift. And actually, I think it's really hard to be fully prepared. The other thing about Motorola, we did have nine months to sort of study the company, understand it from the outside while we went through the regulatory approval process. And you have no idea when the deal is going to close, when you're going to get approval from, in, in our case, we're waiting for China to approve the deal. Ironic now, right? Ironic now. I mean, now it never happened now. Do you think we would see a deal like that today? Probably not. Probably. Now, Motorola had operations in China, which is a reason we needed to get approval, and we were selling into China. So there would have been probably ways to uh -huh. get the deal done, but it would have been much harder. Uh -huh. But day one, you walk in, you don't know when the deal is going to close, and then you kind of get some signal from the lawyers, hey, it's going to be Thursday. But you get that on a Tuesday. And then on Thursday, you're addressing the company. And there's 20,000 employees and they're all asking or wondering what's going to happen. So that's a pretty awesome change. And it's definitely intimidating. Did Larry come to you well before maybe when they announced the acquisition to when the acquisition was closed? Did he come to you at some point in that time to say, hey, we want you to do this? Yeah. So what happened was... If you back up, Android was starting to gain traction in mobile. I think Android had about 20% share of the operating system market for mobile. Apple, Microsoft, Nokia, all were suing Android partners because the IP that Android was based on 
the argument was anyway, infringed on their IP. Mm. So Google had a choice. Google could potentially watch its partners go away as they got sued, or it could find IP that would defend against the patents that were being asserted against the partners. And at that same time, Motorola Mobility had been spun out of Motorola Corporate. They basically split the company and spun out the mobile business, which had all this IP around 3G and wireless standards that every mobile device needs to license. And so Motorola was actually quite smart about their position. They realized that they had this treasure trove of IP. Carl Icahn invested heavily in Motorola Mm -hmm. and essentially instigated a process where it was clear Motorola was in play. And I knew none of this because my job at the time was running ad sales in North and South America. This wasn't even on your radar. It wasn't on my radar. I knew that things were going on. I knew that things were going on with Android. I was reading the same headlines that everybody else, maybe a little bit more informed. But I woke up one day and we had bought Motorola Mobility. I didn't have any advance notice more than anybody else. And part of the reason was motivated very much by IP. But of course, we also acquired a handset company that had 20,000 employees. I want to say about $8 billion in revenue. And actually, it was a much more complex business than that. There was a set-top box business that supplied the likes of Comcast and so forth. So that's what we wound up acquiring. Would it be fair to say it was more of a defensive rather than an offensive acquisition for Google? I think everybody in retrospect, yes. It was absolutely something. Now, you have to gauge the results by what happened. Android went from 20% market share to where is it today? 80% market share? Yeah. Windows out of the market, Nokia out of the market. Now it's iOS and it's Android. The fact that Motorola had those patents and then Google had those patents absolutely allowed for eventually peace in the ecosystems and the lawsuits kind of went away and the products could compete on the merits, which was really kind of the point all along. Yeah, but that was a tough job, man, right? It was a tough job. Like you had to get rid of... 30 plus product lines to let go of like a bunch of people. Where I'm going with this is I'm putting myself in your shoes as at the time running ad sales. Right. For a, North- a great business. Like a great, <laughs> like growth business. Yes, yes. Talk about something on the offensive versus maybe something on the defensive, maybe retrospectively easier to say than at that yeah. point or whatever. Yeah. But I'm just putting myself in your shoes to take on your first CEO job, that one. Well, it was brave. It's brave. I, I wanted a new challenge for sure. The company we bought, think of it as two different companies the set top box and cable infrastructure business, which was profitable, mm-hmm. which we decided on day one we didn't want to be in because it's in many ways pursuing this the exact opposite strategy of like a YouTube, mm-hmm. right? YouTube's over the top, and the cable infrastructure business is all about sort of locking down the home. So we decided to exit that business and we started a sale process. It's pretty straightforward. The mobile device business had been losing, I think, a billion dollars a year for at least three years prior. So was investing heavily to try to get into true smartphones, smart devices, still had a big non-smartphone business that was driving a bunch of revenue, tons of models, because the strategy pre-iPhone was 
you proliferated SKUs. You know, you would walk into a mobile store and there might be 30 models from a given manufacturer, right? right? So that strategy doesn't work in a right. smartphone world. And they were just starting to kind of move in the direction of fewer SKUs, more wood behind fewer arrows. Right. So we had to clean that up, brought in a new team to help do that. Yeah. And that was a lot of work. Yeah. I read, and again, not everything that I read on the internet is true. The article was 9 to 5 Mac, or the publication, which mm. is, I think, the insider. What it said, which was fascinating to me, was that at the time, it was clear to Larry and the Google team that you wanted something new. You wanted something more. And by the way, that pattern is consistent throughout your entire career. Mm. And apparently, Tim Cook at Apple wanted you to run sales there. Again, this is all just the things that I read online. And then the Motorola thing kind of came about. Is any of that true? It's true that there are reports about that, I guess, is <laughs> yeah. what I would say. Were you getting courted by Apple at some point to just go run sales there? I was very fortunate at Google to have been a part of a team that did amazing things. Yeah, I joined Google very early and I had the opportunity to lead sales in first emerging markets. I'd never led sales before. So I have from my territories from Russia to South Africa, built teams in, I want to say 13 or 15 countries and eventually led sales in the US and South America. So I was able to build a track record mostly because I was able to surround myself with amazing people. And so that created opportunities for sure. That makes sense. When you look back, I'm fascinated by this Motorola experience for you because your resume basically reads like a hit list of just incredible home runs back to back to back to back. Home runs for most people's standards, okay? Obviously, Google set the bar for what great looks like. But still, I look at this, and the Motorola thing, I imagine, was such a difficult, unique time for you in your career. I have to imagine. It was insanely hard. And... Tell me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it done in a way where it was independent from yes. Google? So it's not like you had, maybe Google did the acquisition, but you didn't have all of the tailwinds and the infrastructure that traditional Google corporate would give you. That's correct. Like you did it the really, really hard way. Well, what we had, <laughs> we had a couple things going for us. We had the benefit of access to the Google leadership, you know, world-class, right? Whether it's Patrick Bichette or Nikesh, mm -hmm. they were engaged and would provide a lot of direction and advice to me on what we should do. We had the advantage of Google currency so we could hire people and give them Google stock. So I built an entirely new management team and several of those people like Rick Osterloh was running hardware at Google today. So world-class operators that we were able to bring into the company. And then we were able to sit down and like really rethink what, where do we go? Now, the problem is that Apple was already off to the races. Samsung was off to the races. And in that business, if you don't control one of the major elements of the bill of materials, the chip or the screen or the battery or the camera today, you really are dependent on your suppliers. And you're kind of last in line because your scale is smallest. So there's so many things. If It's a classic case of if you're not the number one, number two player in the market, especially in hardware, especially in that kind of a product category, it's really hard to catch up. And that's kind of what happened with Motorola and everybody else who is not Apple, Samsung. Maybe there's a handful of others that you could talk to, about. Totally. Did you like being the CEO? I know that sounds like a weird question because everyone is supposed to aspire to be the CEO at all times. Yet before that, you were never the CEO. And after that, 
You've never been the CEO. In a lot of cases, you've been the founder whisperer most of your life. I don't really know how else to put it. Did you like being the CEO? I was talking to Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn. Yeah. He said kind of the same thing, like, wow, you picked a hard one as your starting <laughs> gig. I think it was incredibly challenging and it required at the time 110% of my time, attention, focus to the point where it was really stressful. I mean, it's stressful in your personal life. My kids are younger, I'm not spending as much time with my kids. I'm flying around trying to get this business head in the right direction. So I would say it was quite hard. And the things that I like about working with founders are, you know, if you talk about Pat Brown or you talk about Larry or Girish at Freshworks, I love the vision. And I love the fact that they have really thought about the problem that they're trying to solve and how we're going to get there. I'm the person really deep down inside who can help someone scale to that vision. But I am not going to be the founder of a company, obviously, at this point. And so I think for me, I migrated back to that role where I am helping someone with a very strong vision scale from a small company to a big company based on what I know. I like that. I definitely can say that I like that. Yeah, Jen Tejada, the PagerDuty CEO, she calls herself the refinder, not the founder, but right. the, the refinder. I, I, I listened to her podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 When you were going through the Motorola thing and you said it was really hard, what does really hard feel like? When you say it was stressful, what does stressful look like? Because one of the things was that you had the blessing and the curse of seeing what the best look like. Right. Being the president of North and South America, Google, that's as good as it gets in terms of ripping businesses. Then you go to this. I just wonder, was it almost more challenging leaving this incredible thing that you just had to then go to what feels like a precipitously different? Well, yeah. Yeah. And the bar was very high. Like right. for what I always was thinking, for Motorola to be relevant for Google, that bar was very high totally. because Google was- And you knew the bar. And I knew the bar. And when I say stressful, I mean, like you said, within the first three months, we had to do a restructuring and we had to let go of close to 5,000 people. And I had to be the one to stand up at three months into the new job and tell the whole company, this is what we're doing and why. Google, we had done some smaller restructurings at Google, but Google doesn't prepare you for that moment, right? That's hard. So when I say hard, that is like a losing sleep type of thing where, you know, you're talking about people's livelihoods that you're affecting and that's no fun at all. So that is the kind of stress that you live with. And then you realize how responsible you and your team are for getting this ship heading in the right direction or landing in the right place. Because if you don't, you're going to have to do that again. When you get that stressed out, what's a coping mechanism for you? Well, I've always been, you know, engaged in kind of outside pursuits, athletic stuff. I've tried to continuously compete in triathlons for a long time. So training, I try to get an hour a day in to the gym or on a run. Or every day? Almost every day. Yeah. And that helps a lot because that's like free time. The phone's off. I can think. I can just get into my thoughts. And I find coming out of that, I have better clarity, more focus, calmer, all those positive things that you get when you just have a little bit of time to yourself. You do Ironmans. Yes, I didn't actually know what an Iron Man was until, <laughs> I mean, I've heard about it. Yeah. I've seen like people have tattoos on it, Yeah, but I didn't know what it was. And I was reading it before this interview, 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and then a marathon, 26.2 miles. How many of these have you done? I think I've done 16. I may have done 17. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 16 to 17. Yeah. 
And let me ask you, this picture, I'll show the camera and then I'll show you. That's my daughter. Yeah, That's your daughter. Yeah. Did you do? That was a local triathlon in Central California. So we've done it a bunch and we both want our age group, which is why we're on this on that. You're uh, kidding me. Yeah. It turns out we're going to do a half Ironman in May together. You're kidding me. Yeah. We've done a couple. What got you into this? You know, I was active as a kid and then I played a bunch of sports in high school. I wasn't good at enough at any of them to go to college and play. But then I remember I got a letter when I went to Cornell that I thought was only addressed to me that said, hey, we saw that you did something in high school, whatever, show up. We want you to try out for the rowing team. So I showed up thinking I'm the only guy, and like 200 guys are there. <laughs> Everyone got invited. <laughs> but And the coach said, hey, we're not going to cut anybody, but I guarantee you by Thanksgiving, I'll have exactly the number of people that I need. I need 24 people. Yeah. And he just made the workout so hard. And like every day we have fewer and fewer people until we had exactly how many he, he needed. Are you more competitive with yourself or with the external world? Meaning, are you more interested in the time or no, I want to win. You want to win. <laughs> and and that competitiveness, do you think you pass that down to your daughter? I think my wife would say yes. Yeah. Like you think that can be taught? I don't know. I think it's observed maybe. And then, so I have two kids, a son and a daughter. My son's a senior. My daughter's a sophomore in college or both in college. I think my son is very driven for sure. He's not athletically competitive. He's actually a good athlete, but he is very driven and consumed by what he's focused on, which is right now ethical application of AI. So I think that that is something that he probably got, like that intellectual curiosity and drive from Laura, my wife, and from me. And my daughter's also, she's currently really getting into accounting. She's at Wharton at Penn. And I think that she has gotten, again, both the intellectual drive, but certainly the more competitive drive. She's very competitive. So at Motorola, as an example, when things get really stressful, do you end up pushing yourself harder on the workouts, or do you end up missing the workouts? <laughs> no, I think you wind up missing. You just can't help. I mean, you just can't help it. No, you can't help it. And the regularity of sleep and you know all that's really important. You just can't. And I wasn't competing at the same level back then in that job for sure. Yeah. Like as an example, like I got, I really started getting fast after I was not in that job. <laughs> <laughs> right. So a few weights got lifted off yes, your shoulders, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And then with the Motorola thing, they used like the business was sold, and then you kind of moved on? Yeah. So we sold that set-top box business quite soon. And then we had a decision to make. Google was in it to win in every category. Think about like YouTube. YouTube is the leader in video for sure. Think about DoubleClick and what they did there. Google's not in it to be number two, number three, right? So that was the question is what would it take to really drive this into a major contributor to Google? And there was so much involved to get there that we decided it wasn't, we weren't the right owner for the business and ultimately sold it to Lenovo. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me read your resume back to you because it's spectacular. And then I want to just pick off a bunch of questions since I haven't already started doing that. Okay, you went to Cornell, studied uh, industrial relations, and then you went to Stanford. Yeah. Got your law degree. Yes. You were a law clerk, which is, I think, what aspiring lawyers go do after law school. Then you went to a law firm. You were an attorney. You spent two years doing that. Then you decided seven years into your career that law was not your thing. You went to McKinsey, where I think your wife was that's at right. the time. She kind of recruited me. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. She has inside, it, right. inside access. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And then uh, you did five years of that, almost. Actually, a little more than five. Then you went to Google. You were... Correct me if I'm wrong, like around a thousand, like employee a thousand. There was about a thousand people. A thousand. Yeah. This was in, call it October of 2003. Yeah, late 03. Yep. And you did almost 10 years there. Yeah. Almost 10 years. It was, I think it was close to 11 with the Motorola stuff. Yeah. Close to 11. Yeah. Yeah. And then about yeah. a year and a half, two years with the Motorola yeah. stuff. Right. Yeah. 
where you started as a director of business operations and you ended as the president of basically the Americas. Yeah, that's right. Motorola for two years, then you left Dropbox, COO of Dropbox, then you went to be the president of Impossible Foods, and then as of September, so like not that long ago. No, about four months, five months. Yeah, Yeah. three, four months ago, you became the president of Freshworks. That's right. G, former guest of the show. Is that, yeah, yeah, great guy. Love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like a great dude. Really good guy. And you were on the board of ServiceNow. For four years. That's right. Right? Yep. We just had Bill McDermott that we released this week. Went supernova. Oh, I got to listen to that one. What a guy, huh? Yeah, great guy. Great guy. Super enthusiastic. And super authentic. Yes. Like that enthusiasm is- Is real. Is real. Yes. It is real. I was very curious. Is this legit? Yeah. Because it's almost hard to believe. Yeah, yeah. When you were there, did the transition from John to Bill- Yes, Had it already happened? No. So I knew John from my Google days- Mm -hmm. And that's how I got involved with the ServiceNow board in the first place. Got it. And then John went on to become the CEO of Nike. Got it. Makes sense. While I was there. Yeah. What was conversation like for you at the dinner table growing up? (laughs) Uh, Where was conversation? So I grew up in Pennsylvania, Uh uh, outside of Philadelphia. I have a sister who's two years younger than me. You know, I would say we talked a little bit about my dad's business. We would talk about... A lot of talk about school, sports. My parents, my my mom in particular, was very much focused on academics and making sure that we kind of put the work in and applied ourselves and all that stuff. I wouldn't say there was anything kind of out of the ordinary, unusual. There was definitely an expectation or a, yeah, I would say an expectation that both my sister and I were expected to apply ourselves. And it's my parents- oriented. But yeah, I mean, both my parents grew up in kind of very working class Philadelphia. My dad's father passed away when he was young and his mom had to kind of, make a living and it was hard. And so I think he actually, he went through a time where he was trying to figure out his kind of path and wound up starting a small company that allowed for him to provide for his family in a way that, you know, he never had. So I think that he, his expectations, like many people in that situation were that his kids were blessed and he wanted them to achieve. And that could be grades, that could be sports, but you know, neither my mom nor my dad really stood for us slacking off at all. So that was the environment. That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, <laughs> did I'm curious. So people described you as serious and intense. I don't actually, I, people describe me that way. I don't know what I make of it, but I'm curious, did having kids soften you up at all? Or were you, is it the same? Oh, no. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, sure. I think with kids. Or are you just saying that because you're supposed to say that? No, but it took a while. I would say it was more when my kids felt like that they could put me in my place, which I think then you realize, okay, you can't take yourself as seriously as you might want to. Did it soften me? I think just as you get more life experiences, go through some of these harder things, you start taking yourself a little less seriously. That's what I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. When you were at McKinsey, one of the things that struck me tell me if this is true or false, yeah. was that you took an assignment to go to Korea for yeah, a year. Actually, my wife and I. Both, both of you? Yes. Together? Yes. That's so, kind of cute. It, <laughs> <laughs> so we were, I think, newly married. She did stuff in like marketing and telecom, and I was doing more corporate M&A because of my background, the legal stuff. And South Korea had just come out of the Asian financial crisis, right? So you had tons of companies that had to be completely restructured in Korea. McKinsey was fairly new in the country. I think it had been there, you know, maybe five years or so. 
but all of a sudden found itself very busy and didn't have a lot of trained consultants who were Korean. So they were importing people from around the world. And to be honest, like not that many people wanted to go because you're going to do business in Korean. At the time, if you just walked around Seoul, it was, it did not, if you go there now, it's very different. It did not feel like a part of the global community. It was very Korean. Mm -hmm. And as I said, very stupidly, when I got there, gee, everybody's Korean, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, it, it most- It's not a melting pot. It's not a melting pot. Most global cities are a little bit more of a melting pot. And even today, Seoul is. So Laura and I raised our hands and said, yeah, we'll go. And it was an amazing experience. It was hard. I worked for a large conglomerate that was going through massive restructuring. And so it was, you know, what divisions do you keep? What divisions do you not keep? How do you get the performance of the divisions that you're keeping back to par so you can actually pay down your debt? And those companies were on the brink, very much so. And some of them did not make it. I ask because most of the decisions are non-obvious decisions that it seems like you make. Meaning, going to Korea, when you went to Google, especially when you went international to Google, it was not obvious that that was a slam dunk. We just discussed the Motorola thing, not that obvious. I wonder, it's almost like you're choosing the harder path. It's almost like, you know, not to tie two things together that may not exist, but I think about the way that you work out. It's almost like a glutton for some version of the hard thing, the unconventional thing. Well, I thing. think that's how you learn. That's how you grow through those kinds of challenges. I think, I think also I've always been attracted to what is this going to look like on the other side? So for me at that time, let's say the decision to go to Korea, very clear that Asia was going to become a massive part of our world and the economy and everything else. Here's an opportunity to work in Asia and observe for yourself and learn for yourself. What is that like? And one of the reasons I left law was law is state by state. If you're a California lawyer, you're not traveling that much outside of California. And I kind of wanted to see the world and experience the world and business allows you to do that. The decision to go to Google, it was somewhat obvious to me that search was going to be important and that as the internet grew, search was just going to become more important. So why not become a part of that kind of a company and see where it takes you? So that's kind of how I think about things. Where could this go? I think Eric Schmidt said this to me once. He's like, most people think about what's going to happen if things go wrong, but the people we want are the ones who are going to think, what happens if this goes really well? And if you think that way, you make different decisions. When you went there, were there any key questions that you felt like you needed answered before you took the job? The thing I was most impressed with was the team, actually. So I had had some exposure to startups in the first dot-com bust. And one of the things that always struck me was how unorganized the teams were and the caliber of management of some of these companies was just not where it needed to be. But when I went in, walked into Google, I met David Drummond and Jonathan Rosenberg. I met Eric and Shona Brown, who was actually at McKinsey with me for a time. And these are high caliber, super experienced Omid Kordestani leaders. And I was like, that team is amazing. And, you know, I don't fully understand where this is going to go, but I believe in the vision and I believe that that team's going to be successful. So that's what was really compelling for me. Yeah. When you joined, what was the original charter? So the concept was that Google wanted to create a small team that wasn't 
part of any specific function, but that could sort of parachute in and help the functional leaders solve problems. So an example would be Urs Hosel, who was running infrastructure, he was building out basically a supply chain for what they called the build, where Google would build its own boxes to power its data centers. And we didn't have a supply chain. We didn't have a material resources planning process. And he needed help in creating basically the processes and systems to run a supply chain. So that's not like any natural person's home within the company. Nope. <laughs> so that problem would come to us, not that we were the experts at it, but we would work with ORS and help him figure that out. And the reason I got involved in sales was I was working, Omid had asked, hey, can you work with our sales team and help us think about as our customer base evolves, how should we think about segmenting it and then going to market against different profiles of buyers? Because on the one extreme, you had like Amazon, super sophisticated technical sale. But the budgets at that time, like the big ad budgets, were with GM, who was just kind of learning the mm -hmm. internet. So how do you think about those things? And I work with the product team and with the sales team. We came up with a plan. We reoriented the sales team to go to market quite differently. That was kind of like as a consultant to the sales leaders. Those are the kinds of projects that we took on. Yeah. And I would say one of the more fun ones was Eric asked us, hey, I want to understand the 10 ways Microsoft could screw us, although we didn't use that word. And what should probably more violent <laughs> yes, language. Yeah. And what, could, what should we do? to avoid being in that position. So we ran around to like a bunch of the engineers and people in business development and we came up with like, here's 10 ways Microsoft could really hurt us and here's what we could do to counter it. And a lot of stuff came out of that that actually worked. So that was the job, the first job that I had there. John Dorr has this amazing line. I think he's, I'm gonna butcher it, but he said to me something like, in reference to Microsoft talking about Intuit and everything that was going on at that point, he's like, you know, one thing I definitely learned from that is you never wanna stand on the tracks of a moving train. You know, he's just like, get out of, right, the, out way. of the way. Yeah, you right. do not want to be in front of that train. Okay, so they hired you, maybe in my words, not yours, as a problem solver. Yeah, I like that. How did they test your problem solving ability? Meaning, before you joined. Hmm. I'm curious when all of those incredible executives are interviewing you. I imagine Larry or Sergey and Omid were probably yeah, part of the process. Sergey, Sergey was, and Omid. They probably had problem solver in mind too. I'm just curious how they tested for that. I remember Sergey asked me a question about organization and how should we think about the, like mathematically how many layers should be in the organization at any point in time. I think at the time there was some debate about, hey, we're getting too hierarchical and so forth. I think I got a question from Jonathan, some arcane product strategy question. You kind of half wing it and half rely on what you know and get involved in a conversation. That's kind of what happened. What was the trickiest problem they asked you to solve? When I was there? Yeah. Hmm. That's a good, well, I'll tell you about the one that I thought was the most interesting and, yeah, that, and that wound great. up actually leading me to change what I was doing. So Google at the time had operations in North America, maybe Mexico, Japan, and then the Western European countries, so Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and the UK. And yet Google had searches from all over the world. And what Larry was really interested in is, okay, let's think long-term, what should our presence be outside of these major markets that are where we're making all this money? So we went off and I was paired up with, I remember Sikinder Singh, who's now, who's just named the CEO of Zero. I don't know if you know Zero, it's an accounting 
software cool. company based in, in yeah, uh, I know zero, but she wound up running StubHub and done a bunch of things. But anyway, she and I were paired up and we sort of did the typical MBA analysis of, Hey, there's probably 20 markets that matter outside of the ones we're in. Here's how we get in. And I remember we, we presented that to Larry and, and Eric. And I remember Larry saying, you totally misunderstood the purpose of the assignment. We have searches in 196 countries. Now we can't do business in four because it's illegal. But I want you to come back and tell us how we can do business in the 192 other ones. And he really meant it. So he wanted a person in every country where there was searches, not to make money, but to learn. And so we had to come back. And you think, oh, how hard can that be? You just hire somebody in Nigeria. Well, actually, you got to set up an entity or figure out how you pay them. And there's a bunch of legal issues. But we wound, we came back with, okay, here's how you would do it if you want to do it. And he greenlit that as a as an actual project and said, okay, go hire people in Nigeria and Kenya and Morocco. And we called them scouts. And their job was to teach us back at HQ, how is the internet evolving? What's different about the internet in Malaysia that we need to understand now if our product is going to be successful there? Less about monetization. So we set all that up. And then we're like, and they're kind of like, well, there's nobody to run it. Like, who's going to do this job? Run the respective countries. Like, actually go out and yeah, hire all totally, these people totally. and build yeah. it all up. And there were, there were a bunch of countries where we could make money now, like yeah. Poland or Russia. Yeah. So Sikinder, I think for some reason we decided that we'll divide the world in two, Latin America and Asia, but we'll pair them together. Like, there's lots of flights between yeah. those two. No. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then we'll have we'll have EMEA. And Sikinder, I think, I, like, very quickly, okay, she's going to go do the Latin America, Asia one. And there was this Mia role, and I'm like, hey, I want to do it. And I remember talking, so Nikesh Arora was newly hired and talking to him about it. And he's like, yeah, maybe, but I kind of want someone who's actually been to one of those countries. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I understand. Yeah. So like three months go by, and I go back and I call Nikesh, and I'm like, hey, you know that Mia job, that emerging Mia job, you haven't filled it yet. It's like, yeah, I know, but we got great candidates. We're going to get there. And like three months later, they had nobody. He's like, okay, fine, you can have the job. That was how it happened. So I moved my family to London. And then I started hiring from Russia to South Africa, just amazing people who were excited about being part of Google. How many did you hire? How many call it country managers? I'm guessing 13. You know, I'd have to go back and actually look. But the interesting thing is most of those markets, information was not free historically. And in many of those places, the free market was less than 10 years old. So think this was 19 or 2000 and five, 2000, yeah, 2005. So, you know, the wall fell, what, in 91? Mm -hmm. So, okay, so call it 14 years of quasi-free market. So you have to go hire people who are going to fit with a Silicon Valley culture in Warsaw, where most people work for the government. And the people we found, like the guy who's still at Google, his name's Artur Walaszewski. He was our country manager in Poland. The reason he was so excited to join us. And the reason he was so good is that when he was a kid, his parents were professors. And I don't remember if it was his mom or his dad, but one of them was arrested by the state police just for teaching something that was against what the state wanted them to teach. And he remembered sitting in his basement listening to Radio Free America. And here he is talking to Google, whose mission is to free all the world's information. So you hear that story and you're like, I want you. Yeah. And so that was what was super exciting about that job. Yeah. The people that we got were amazing and most of them are still at Google. Can you unpack that one more layer? When you go into Poland, 
or when you go into some of these markets and you have to screen so many candidates. And by the way, I've heard not only did you hire that many people, 14, 15 plus country managers, you did it very fast. We did it in probably six or nine months. Yeah. That's insane. But that's all I did was hire. Fine. So, so what I would do- yeah, It's a hard job to hire for. So, so what I would do is I would send a company-wide email and Google it saying, hey, we're going into Russia. Do you Just speak- thousands of people. Yeah, there's a couple thousand people. Yeah. If you speak Russian and would like to go, let me know. And then I would get a couple people, Arena Pavlova, who was a business development person who happened to be like, I think she's a Harvard business school. She wound up becoming later on the president of the Nets basketball team. What? Yes. She kind of pings me. Yeah. Hey, I'm Russian. I'm interested. And so I was like, great, we're going to Russia. And so I would bring someone to every country and we had people from Turkey. We had people from Israel, like within the company, we had people from Poland. So I would bring at least one person. It didn't matter what the role was for Poland. I got brought a guy named Michael Lorenk from Chicago who was in sales for Turkey. We had, someone who came out of customer support, like a level two person, come with me and help me evaluate these candidates because I don't know the culture. You know the company. And then what I tried to do is convince them, hey, why don't you just move to Russia for a year and help us out? And in most cases, the people did. So Michael moved to Poland. Someone moved to Turkey. We had Arena moved to Russia. And we had someone moved to Israel. And the great thing is you had an employee early in their career. This was like a chance of a lifetime for them, but they knew our culture and they also could help the country, new country manager get things done within Google and they could help that person become part of our culture. So they wouldn't be the country manager, no. but they were the liaison between the culture and the country. Right. They would culture take, of, of Google and the country. And they would take a role in the country. So first they would come with me on the interview loop and they would interview all the candidates. They're, like tra they're translating. No, we're all speaking. Everybody's Everyone's speaking English. English. Okay, yeah. Yeah. They're interviewing the candidate. I'm respecting what they're saying for sure because I, I, I want to really understand, are we hiring the right person for us? And they're primarily interviewing for culture fit. Primarily. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then they're taking a role on that team. And so most of the time that was awesome. And where it also helped us was we had one country manager that did not work out for cultural reasons. And I heard about it because I knew the person in the country right. who came from Google. Right. And I was like, yeah, you know, if, if she's telling me that I got to listen and I got to make a decision. So that helped a lot. And I think it was really fun for me because you can give people such an, and I think going back to the Korea experience, I knew what it was like to kind of parachute into a country that I had no experience in. And I thought that having someone who was typically born and raised in the U.S., but from these countries going back home, that what an amazing experience for them. Did you think you would ever leave or were you certain that at some point you would get antsy for... A new experience. I, I would say what happened for me was... Like, you just had it so good. That's the problem. I For me, when I came back to the U.S., I came back in 09, so right in the throes of the real recession, right? The quasi-great recession. We had an amazing team where we kind of restructured the team and created an amazing, high-performing team that wound up driving growth out of the recession. But I think that for me... When you start getting to that cycle where you're doing the same thing for the fourth year, where it's like a little bit more rinse and repeat, and you know you can drive another year of amazing performance, but the level of uncertainty is not as high and the level of challenge is not as high, I start getting antsy. And so that's kind of what I think happened ultimately with Google. And that, well, that led to Motorola. That led to led, Motorola. Yeah. Can you tell me when you were leaving Motorola, how did the Dropbox thing, did you ever consider going back to proper Google? Was that even on your radar? 
It wasn't as much on my radar, I think. So I had gotten to know Drew Halston. I'm not sure exactly who introduced me. I think maybe it was Brian Stryer at Sequoia. I know Brian later on got very involved. And so I just more as a mentor type thing, like it, uh, helping him think through some of the problems that that he was having. That business was scaling insanely fast at the time. And he had a product that was, you know, what I would call a single player product, storage in the cloud for an individual. And he had just built a product that was for teams, really the business product, which has wound up driving the growth of the company for years. And so he was confronted with, okay, I'm going from a model that is very referral driven to one where I need to build a sales team, need to think about go to market. I'm thinking about getting off of AWS as my supplier. How would I do that if I build my own infrastructure? I can get great economic benefits, but there's risks. There were a lot of challenges that he had. And the expectations for the company were insanely high. So I thought, okay, I could stay at Google and I'm not sure what role I would have, but I would probably be leading a large team. But I didn't feel like I was going to be as exposed to the result, good or bad, and as exposed to the impact as I would if I went to a company that was scaling and I was on the senior leadership team of that company. I just wanted that. I saw what Cheryl had done going to Facebook. There were a number of other people who had sort of made the move to other scaling up startups. And I thought that that would be a fun thing to do as well as a good use of my skills. So that's why I left. 90% or so of the business at the time when you joined was single player self-serve. That's correct. That's correct. Self-service, like swipe a credit card, just get up and running. Yeah. And it was all, it was referral model, right? So I would refer you, you would sign up, I would get storage credits. You've never done that before. I just, again, I put myself in their shoes for a second. There seems like they're hiring chief problem solver again, not necessarily for the things that you've done, but potentially for their perceived ability on how you could solve problems. Is that fair? For companies that are doing something different and innovative in the Valley, no one has ever done anything exactly like Mm -hmm. what they're doing. So they're not hiring for that experience. They're hiring for the ability to come up with the right answer for that situation. And I think in that case, what Drew was looking for was he wanted to spend more time with the product and engineering teams. He saw himself being distracted by all the stuff that you need to do to build a world-class HR team and the world-class marketing team and a world-class sales team. And he realized he could accelerate his own company's trajectory as well as focus on the things that he's really world-class at if he brought someone in and handed that off. And that's what he did. I give them credit. Many founders don't do that because I do think, correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree, that there is some perceived essence of losing control where you're brought in to be a meaningful voice of the company. And you were. You're the COO of Dropbox. Like you were doing basically all the day-to-day operations work. You're building all the teams. I think that's hard for founders to grok as an idea of, you know, now we've hit puberty and we're teenagers and we're going to need some people around us to make sure we make the right decisions. But I think if you look at companies that have been successful, most of them have gone through that phase. It either works out that the founder is very engaged, involved, or the founder's out. Right? Uh, but if you think about Google, right, Larry Page brought Eric in. If you think about Facebook, Mark brought Cheryl in. And then at the time, right, at, very soon after I joined Dropbox, Stripe, 
brought Claire Hughes Johnson in. So I think that there is a track record of smart founders bringing in people who have a little more experience and who can help them on things that they have not seen before. I think you need to check your ego at the door to do it. You totally do. And I get that question all the time. Why don't you just become a CEO or whatever? I think, first of all, because I, I think I'm well suited to working with founders and I like doing it. I'm inspired by the vision and I think, and I'm not the vision guy necessarily, right? But I also think that the more interesting companies are the ones where the founder is very engaged and driving that long-term vision. That's the heart and soul of the company. They're the ones who've thought of the problem the longest and thought of the customer the longest and understand the customer problem the best and understand the landscape the best. It's important to keep them involved. So I think that's why you see people like me going into companies like Dropbox at that time. Was it a smooth transition going in? One thing that was a, a little bit of a shock was the P&L did not look so great going in. And we had to do, you know, very quickly, like, what can we change to change the trajectory of, to actually get to a sustaining model? And, you know, like with any relationships, there's ups and downs. And But where I think we really came together was I, maybe 2016, we realized that this was a business that was on its way, but we had to change how we were managing it if we really wanted to be successful. We had to be more disciplined about hiring, more disciplined about performance management, and it took a while, but Drew and Arash both were like, yeah, we agree. And there was a moment that if you talk to Arash, he'll laugh about that, where that we called it the Chrome Panda moment, where someone decided when we had new offices to buy this huge, like 12 foot tall Chrome Panda, which cost some ridiculous amount of money. And it became like this symbol of excess that we never wanted to repeat again. And we sort of redid the budget. We were like, yeah, okay, we went too far. Now we got to kind of pare back and we got to really become a real company. And then we went public a couple of years later. I did talk to Arash. He said that what you told them was in your first 30 days, you're just going to do a listening tour. Just figure oh, out I did say that. Yeah. what's going on. <laughs> Within a week, that changed pretty quickly. That's, that, actually, that's totally true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I said I was going to do a listing tour. And then within a week, I was like, we got to renegotiate our AWS contract. And within 38, Ajay Vashi, who's, I think he's at NEA now, he and I wound up renegotiating with AWS and Google simultaneously around our contract. So Why couldn't you finish the listening tour? Because it was obvious what to do. Yeah. So I wasn't going to sit there and listen. <laughs> <laughs> going back to my comments around um, like hardcore intensity. Yeah. A lot of these tech companies don't have that culture. Do you think that they do? I don't know. I mean, I think Bill McDermott, you were, we were talking about Bill earlier, well, but he's a pretty intense guy. And I think there's exceptions. Yeah. I also think it's a generational thing, if I'm being honest. Like, I do think that you and Bill McDermott's generation comes from a different school of thought than I think that next era, you know, call it the, what'd you call it? The Chrome Panda? The, the Chrome Panda? The Chrome Panda. I don't agree. I mean, I think like take Drew, he, he is a very methodical, very focused guy. And to solve the problem that he solved took him coding probably 20 hours and Arash 20 hours a day. When I joined Dropbox, Arash was still taking all the customer feedback and like prioritizing it, getting it to the engineers, actioning it. So I think those guys are pretty intense. So there wasn't a culture shock. There probably was, sure. But yeah. it wasn't, there were funny things that happened that I was like, that surprised me in a way that possibly was scary at yeah. times, but it was, I wouldn't say it was like a shock. Yeah. What I mean by that or where I'm coming from is when you generally bring in a professional manager, yeah. a COO yeah. into a company, there's usually changes that happen. Yeah. And usually 
it's different than the way things have been. It was definitely, And yes. I actually, I don't worry about the founders yeah. in those cases because the founders are the ones that ultimately are acknowledging that changes need to be made yeah. and are bringing you in. I think more about just the general, the company. That's yeah. where I was coming from. I think the changes were 100% around hiring the right, you know, getting the right people into the organization. Yeah. And finding people who have seen great and finding people who have seen growth. I think that's really important. And I also like to bring people in who maybe haven't had the job that they're interviewing for, but are clearly capable of doing it. So that was the biggest change, bringing that team in. So like an example is I hired Arden Hoffman from Google to run HR. And we had our HR team, super important to Drew and Arash that we have a great culture, but there were lots of problems, both you know recruiting, DNI, a bunch of stuff. And Arden came in and really made, created and built a team that I would say is world-class amongst companies of that scale and size. And that's been recognized. She's now just recently was named the CHRO for General Motors. Bringing world-class talent in, that's what I did. And then good things happen and that creates change. But often the people who are there are hoping that that happens, right? They're looking for leadership. They're looking for that clarity that an Arden Hoffman will bring to the organization. Yeah, that makes sense. And you were there and did a bunch of the work around the IPO, right? Yes. Yeah. So we went public in 2018, early 2018. Honest question. Did that company end up being what you thought it would be? So for Dropbox, the core business is amazing, but with lots of companies, it was very hard to figure out the second product, the second big hit, right? And I think there were lots of opportunities to either create that hit or acquire that hit. We just never figured out what that next hit is. And, I, and so for me, yeah, I think there's potential that was on the table there that hasn't. And, and, you know, I think if you just look at the stock price, that's kind of reflected. It's been pretty flat. What do you attribute that to? Why couldn't it be figured out? Well, the space is very crowded from day one. Yeah. Right. So you had Google and Microsoft with competing products, plus Apple with a quasi competing product. And so that was always an obvious potential constraint on us. And as their products got better, the differentiation became lower and therefore you're not going to grow as fast. I think that we did make some swings on new products that just didn't quite hit the mark. And then we missed some things that were obvious, like it would have been obvious to build and Dropbox later on did acquire a signature capability, right? Like an eSig capability, but we didn't do it fast enough. And, you know, if I think back to Google, Whenever there was an obvious adjacency that had some relationship with search, Google either had a product already or it went out and bought a product. And in some cases, both. So Google had Google Video and it was investing in Google Video. And then it goes out and spends, I don't know what it was, like a billion dollars, which at the time was some crazy amount of money to buy YouTube. We didn't do that at Dropbox, right? And we tended to wait a little bit too long to make that kind of call. Hey, our product's not making it. We got to go buy. Yeah. I don't think you're much of a Twitter user, but no. on Twitter, there is a profile called so, something historical tech memos or something mm -hmm. where basically it compiles emails that have all come out through lawsuits and litigation that have all come to the public forum. Right. And it's all these emails from Larry and Sergey and Steve Jobs, all these people, right? One of them was the back and forth of the Google YouTube, the YouTube acquisition. Oh, really? It's fascinating. I have to see that, yeah. I'll send it to yeah, you. Yeah, please it, do. Because it was the deliberation between, we have this product, and I think we can crush these YouTube guys. Right, right. And Larry or Sergey was like, let's just go check it out. Let's just go check it out. I've heard they're doing some interesting things. And it was funny because the framing of it was, 
and they're in our backyard. It's funny to me now, I don't know if that will be said today, but the proximity was important to right. Google. That this company physical proximity. The physical yeah. proximity. Yeah. They're right here. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. What's your favorite interview question? <laughs> like when I am interviewing candidates or yeah. what? Like if I walked in and I wanted to interview out coming into Freshworks, as for to say for a leadership position. I, I ask everybody where do you want to be in five years? And what's the answer that you look for? The answer that tends to be successful is I want your job. Because I want someone who's ambitious. Do you worry about the Joker breaking the no. pool stick and no. saying, all right, winners no. on the team? No. I want people who have that drive and ambition and want to... That's why I like hiring people who maybe have not been in the role that they're actually coming into, which is a little bit different. A lot of times, you okay, if you want a sales leader, go find someone who's led sales. Yeah, maybe, but maybe find somebody who has something to prove and they'll do a better job. Then you go to Impossible Foods. You spend three three years there? Three and a half years, yeah. Are you taking breaks? I did. That was the break. I, one break I took. I took about six months. But otherwise, you're not taking breaks. No, no. You'll quit a job. You'll leave a job. That's what I did this time, yeah. So you left Impossible Foods. And I, I worked the next weekend. Come on. Yeah. So you took a weekend. Yeah. And then you started working? Yes. Is that because G asked you to do that? Partly, but with the Dropbox one, I always thought when I was working and all these things, hey, I'd love to take six months or a year and just kind of hang out and spend time with my kids and I could take my kids skiing and we can do all kinds of fun things. And you find out when your kids are teenagers that they have their own lives and they, they you know, and your wife's working and you can't actually do any of that. And you're, I literally found myself skiing by myself in Utah being like, this isn't any fun. You know, this isn't what I, you know. So, you know, if you talk to Laura or to my kids, I think they'd say that, I was driving them nuts when I was just sitting around. And so, yeah, I've always been pretty quick from one to the other. When you were looking at the Freshworks opportunity, what struck you? I would say a couple things. One is Samir Gandhi, he's on the board. He's a partner in Excel and he was one of the first investors and they have a large stake. And he, I talked to him trying to get advice on a bunch of different things in the past. And he called me kind of out of the blue and said, hey, you know, I'm on the board of this company. I think you'd love to meet the founder. I respect that. He he knows me because he was one of the lead investors in Dropbox. I think he was probably the first along with Sequoia. He was at Sequoia at the time. And so here's somebody who knows me, who kind of knows what I'm trying to do. And he's never come to me with an opportunity like that. It must be something interesting. So I did a little work on the company. And what I liked was the space that we're competing in is basically software for every company in the world. We do CRM products. We do products for customer support and products for IT. Every company in the world has teams in those areas. And the company was born in India and created these products kind of under the radar with a self-serve motion, very similar to Dropbox, as its primary way of driving growth. So that had allowed it to scale to you know a couple hundred million and had, during the pandemic, built out a sales team to go into mid-market and to go up-market with the products that it had and had started to have success there. But... I had never heard of it, and I know the space pretty well. Like 90% of its revenue is outside of India, even though 90% of its employees are in India. And I thought, wow, you know, if this is the kind of thing that every company in the world is going to need their software, they've got something that's working. They need to scale, go to market. I know how to solve that problem. It's worth talking, you know, to Girish about. And so I, I met Girish. He has a very broad view of what he wants to do, what makes him happy, which is engagement in the product and in the technology. He wants to build a world-class company and he wants some help. So I liked all of that and it was convincing. So that's why I joined. 
When you are evaluating a company like Freshworks, are there any key metrics that you try and hone in on pretty quickly? Is there anything that's a bellwether for you? I like to talk to the customers and understand, do you really hear from the customers, I love the product, right? My skill is not, okay, find product market fit or build a product that gets product market fit. My skill is scaling a product that has product market fit. And so I like to talk to customers and understand, can they sell me the product? Because if they can sell me the product, then there's probably a lot more like them out there. And it's a question of scaling up marketing, scaling up scales, go to market, all that stuff. So I wouldn't say there's a metric, but for Dropbox, I talked to a bunch of customers, both individuals and like my builder, the who built our house. He was like, oh, I love Dropbox, you know? And so, you know, you get a little bit of a visceral feel for, is this a winner or not, just by talking to the customers. Yeah. When you describe markets and jobs, even when I was researching you, it reminds me of a VC. Like it's a very macro view of things. I wondered, so many operators, hardcore operators, which I would put you in the camp of operators, which I would put most people that I've had on the show in this camp, are just tired by this point. They want to go into advisory work, board work, maybe some venture work, maybe an operating partner at a venture firm. Did those options ever, I'm sure they presented themselves. Was there any temptation to do that? Or were you pretty convinced that you want to keep operating? Yeah, I I was convinced I want to keep operating. I like doing things that I know I'm good at and building upon them and applying skills in different contexts. For me, that's different enough. Well, the great thing about being an operator is you are a leader and you ultimately have accountability for your decisions and you can marshal teams around a vision. And that's a lot of fun when it works. You don't get that opportunity if you're on a board. You're one of 10 on the board and your voice might be listened to. It might not be. If you're a VC, you have the opportunity to invest in great companies and see them run. But to me, I'd rather be part of one of those great companies than invested in five. Yeah, that makes sense. And I don't think I'd be any good at any of those things anyway. Like an investor. You like the accountability of it. I do. Like you like the and the comp- focus. And the competition and of the it. the focus. I think I would get distracted in a, ne- in a negative way if I weren't like, okay, you got to spend all your time on this. Like in life, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Like you do like 36 triathlons in a year instead it, of in your not, life? Yeah. yeah. And what do you have at the end of all that? Right. So. Yeah. Do you have any good tips for working with founders? I'm super curious because, well, we spend all our waking hours working with founders and you've worked with some incredible ones. I'm just curious, like if you were to write a chapter of a book that says, here are some things that you should think about if you want to be the right-hand man or woman of a founder. What are some things that you write? I think it's really important to have empathy for what the founder is going through both personally and in the business because those things are just intertwined. And to be able to understand where they're coming from, what their aspirations are, why what they're doing is important to them. What are they motivated by? Are they motivated to build a great company, to solve a big problem, like me, personal reasons, more egocentric? All those things I think matter a lot. So spending real time with the founders to understand all these things I think is important. And then spending time trying to understand why things are the way they are today. And was it by design or by accident? And we're do we both agree we need to go in the future? I spent a lot of time just talking about that with Girish or currently, for sure. 
Because I think it's important to have an aligned vision of where the company could be, what the realities of the company are today. And I think it's also really important to start to talk about, well, what's my role? What's your role? What do you want me to do? How can I help you? Because my job ultimately is to help the founder. If you have more free time, if you have 10 hours more a week because I'm here, how do you want to spend that time? And that's a conversation that you have to have fairly repetitively to keep things going in the right direction. How intentional are you about building trust with them? I mean, I try to be very intentional about it. And I think trust is a lot about communication and being really clear on here's what I think we should do and why. And also clear up front, what's my role? What's your role? How do we communicate to the teams? All of those things I think are super important to build real trust with the founder. Going back to your comment on, maybe you didn't say it this way, but is this intentional or did this happen by accident? Can you give me any examples of interrogating a process or a system in place that whether it's Freshworks or somewhere else, can you bring me through your mindset of how do you approach that problem of, did this happen by So I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. So Freshworks, I started September 1st. Our operations are all around the world. We probably have just a couple hundred people in California, but we have 5,000 plus employees. So it was very clear to me that if I wanted to understand the business, I needed to get out. And so I sat down with G and said, G, here's what I, G is gearish. We call yep. him G. I think I should go to these places. Are these the right places? Who should I talk to there? And I just want to get to understand the business. And so we crafted a month-long world tour where I went to India for 10 days or more. I went to London, Paris, Berlin, Denver, and then a couple of other places just to get to understand, talk to customers and talk to the team. And actually, I, talk, I took my wife, Laura, because I was like, if I'm going to be gone for a month, I'm not going to do that by myself. She'll come along. So she went to the office in Chennai and G pulled her up on stage and had her dance. And it was a lot of fun. So that is all about like, okay, just sitting in a room, then listening to the team. What do you think we're doing well? What do you think we're not doing well? And if you ask that question enough, people sort of crowdsource your priorities for you. In a large organization, there are a lot of smart people and they kind of know what is going well, what might need to be changed. So that's my methodology is just ask a lot of people kind of those three questions, you know, what's going well, what's not going so well, and what can we do to help you? And then just synthesize that. Maybe that's going back to the consulting skills and going back. And I did this with G after a couple of weeks, I said, here's kind of what I think, and here's where I think we should go. And now we're taking action on a bunch of stuff. So that's my methodology. And did he agree with the things you said? Yeah, largely, largely. Yeah. Do you worry about for lack of a better word, calling the baby ugly, you know, like... No, uh, not at all. I mean, both Drew, Pat Brown and Impossible, Girish, they're all realists. They've all been in the trenches and seen good and seen not good. And they know what's working and what's not intuitively in the businesses that they... At least those guys, I never felt that, hey, if I say something critical that that's going to be taken personally. Well, and to be fair, they know who you are. Yep. They know what they're hiring. Yep. So they're kind of opting in to put everything on yeah, the table sure. when you join. Yeah. I can't help myself. I heard that you may or may not have had a unique OKR for yourself that you developed at Dropbox. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't remember. What What was that? It was a hugging OKR. Oh, I did. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dropbox is kind of a big hugging culture, I would say. Are you serious? Yeah, it was. I don't even know what that means. It was. Okay. Well, people hugged a like, lot. There's no handshakes. It's yeah. hugs. Yeah. Well, no, there's they're handshakes. That's too. a funny thing to have as a culture. Yeah. Okay. It, I'm not sure how this all came about, but my daughter said at one point that your hugs suck. And I said, what do you mean? She said, your hugs suck. You don't really hug. You just kind of like 
do this thing. And so she sort of said, okay, we're going to just hug it out and I'm going to rate your hugs and we're going to improve your hugs. So that was the OKR. Better hugs. It's hilarious. Going back to my comment earlier about kids softening you up, that's a pretty good example, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, I appreciate you doing this. Super fun. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I always end these things very similarly. The first is, are you hiring? Are there any key roles that you want to use this platform to shout out that you're hiring for? We are hiring. We are hiring in sales. We're in sales roles and we're hiring in customer support. We're actually hiring across the board. Am I hiring any roles directly? I'm very close on my second hire, which is imminent. So nothing to advertise quite yet. Fair enough. And if you want to apply, reach out to you, go to the career site. I would go to the career site for anything that people are interested in. And if you want to learn more about the genesis of this company, go listen to my episode with Grish. Grish, It's incredible. And he gives you a lot about the early days and what this business is all about. Last one. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? What does it mean to you? I think it means continuing to stay true to what you believe is right in the face of facts that might suggest you're wrong. Dennis Woodside, thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time.